I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In Uncertain World, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to Kevin Stroud about the future of English. Subtract is a musical project led by Aaron Jerome. Hold On featuring Sampa is a small but also big minimalist slice of the electronics. It was released on March 2012. Fascinated 
uh, not only by the English language, but definitely by your work and your study of it. But if I'm to understand how languages are formed, it's by a group of people who have uh, a common tongue, isolating themselves off from others that speak that. And then over time, over generations, mispronunciations become standard within that isolated group. They have new experience, so then invent new words, new grammars, new rules are, are then taken on by that group and a new language is formed. If that is the case, so, um, you know, German begat English, so to speak, in that way, um, surely in this interconnected world which we now live, where everybody um, is connected to everybody and whereby we can hear how the late Victorians spoke, we can definitely hear how Hollywood actors spoke in the 1930s, surely language is not going to change anymore. Is the English language going to fossilise, Kevin? No, it will not fossilize. All <laughs> languages are constantly changing. That's the, the uh -huh. one thing we can say pretty much definitively about all languages on Earth. <laughs> There's an issue as to how fast they change, and there are any number of factors that can speed up language change or slow down language change. And I think today you've hit on one of the factors that may be slowing down language change, and that is the fact that we're all interconnected. English has increasingly emerged as an international language and via, you know, entertainment, internet, etc. You know, we're all using a form of English these days, not, you know, not all of us, but a large percentage of the world is using it, particularly the Western world. And that's kind of anchoring the language uh, and keeping it in place a bit so that you don't have that phenomenon as much where regional dialects become their own distinct languages. Now, you can certainly point to places in the world like Papua New Guinea and some other areas where some English creoles and pidgin languages have actually started to form. And you can call those daughter languages of English, and that may happen on the fringes. But for the most part, I think we increasingly speak a standardized English. And there are a lot of people that lament the loss of regional accents and dialects as we, you know, we all kind of meld together into some standardized form of English. But I do think that the way English has developed and will continue to develop is it, it will prevent that kind of uh, breaking apart and, you know, that fractional fractionalization, if that's a word, uh, that, that often happens to languages over time. Well, fractionalization, if you say it's a word, Kevin, and you've done 100 plus episodes of the history of English, it's definitely a word. I've got mm -hmm. many dictionaries, but I'm not going to open it and look it up. So if somebody wants to check <laughs> it, they can. Uh -huh. So ju just as a slight aside, I take it that you're unbeatable in Scrabble. Not true. I don't even play Scrabble that much. I don't think I really like word games that much you know what's funny i do the history of english podcast and everybody assumes i must just i'm this word nerd that's just fascinated with english my worst subjects in elementary school and, and high school were english classes i mean i didn't do poorly in them i did okay but i didn't mm. particularly enjoy english i mean conjugating sentences and reading all this literature from the 1800s i mean you know, I needed something to keep me awake to do that. But what fascinated me about English and what I really discovered later on 
was the history of the language. That was something I could get into because I never really knew much about the history of English. I knew it was weird. We, we spelled words in a weird way and pronounced words in a funny way. I didn't know why grammar worked like it did. But suddenly I started to realize why. You know, it, it all goes back to the history of the language. And man, you go back and listen to old English uh, over a thousand years ago, it doesn't sound anything like English. You know, it's a, a more or less a pure Germanic language. And that just fascinated me. How did we get from there to where we are today? And you know, that's what the podcast was all about. And so that's really what interests me, that the history and development of the language, uh, more so than being a, a great Scrabble player. One of the things, I'm always absolutely um, kind of fascinated when you, on your show, you launch into, you'll read a passage and it's in Old English or Middle English. How can we be certain that those, those phrases, those words, that you're actually recounting them somewhat authentically? If I was to drag Egbert from 1055 and you, and you spoke your version of, of Old English, would he actually... Would it be actually be intelligible to him? I think it would be intelligible. You got to be careful about saying that a particular reading is authentic. Obviously, we don't have recordings, so nobody mm -hmm. can say for certain. But one thing we have to keep in mind is that dictionaries and pronunciation guides are a relatively recent phenomenon. They didn't really exist until you know the late 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and so prior to that. Whenever a scribe wrote down a word or a manuscript, they had to spell the words phonetically. That was the only way to do it. There was no dictionary to refer to. And so linguists and scholars know with, with some degree of certainty that when they're looking at these old documents, that the words are spelled out phonetically. And that helps guide pronunciation. They also have a very good idea as to the, the pronunciation of the letters. And those could vary too, but given context and environment, they can kind of tell you what a particular sound of a vowel was or the consonant pronunciation was. So the pronunciations can be, let's say they're reasonably recreated, but I, I refuse to argue with anyone that wants to tell me that, you know, the, the way I pronounce a word is wrong. You know, what I'm trying to do is give you some sense or idea of what the language sounded like. But it, to me, it's, it's almost a waste of time to argue as to whether a particular vowel was pronounced uh or ah or uh, you know. But I think it, it's, it's getting reasonably close to the original language. And yeah, I do think it's probably close enough that a speaker of that period could at least get a general idea of what I'm, what I'm saying. Looking at the future of English, or the, and you've kind of said before that English has this amazing ability to change and to morph. I think one of the things that marks out English as opposed to every other language is that it's, it's fundamentally a gender neutral language. You know, the chair isn't female, the bed isn't male, or, and I, as somebody who has struggled to try and learn first German, then French, then Italian, for me, the fact that uh, la macchina in in Italian is like I say la, so it must be female. It just it's just ridiculous to me. Why is it that that English developed in this way? Well, that's a story in, in and of itself, and I don't think all scholars entirely agree on the details. But what we can say is that English did have what they call grammatical gender at one time. So, in other words. 
If you learned Old English, you also had to learn whether each noun was masculine or feminine. That changed near the end of the Old English period into the Modern English period. And a lot of people attribute it to the Vikings. The Vikings invaded England in the you know, late 700s, 800s. And they had a very similar language. Old Norse was very similar to Old English, but the big difference between the two languages was really the inflectional endings. And a lot of that guided was determined by grammatical gender. So basically what happened is the two groups of speakers focused on the root and started to disregard those inflectional endings. And you can actually see that in the surviving manuscripts. Then, of course, you have the, the Norman conquest in 1066, and that kind of continues the process. But one thing we can say is by the time we get into early Middle English, 1200s, 1300s, it's gone. For the most part, it's gone. And English now just, you know, a, a cat is a cat. We don't worry if it's a masculine, feminine, car is a car. We don't worry about any of that grammatical gender. And I would argue that that's one of the advantages that English has over most other European languages when it comes to the future of English and being an international language is it's a little bit easier because they don't have to learn whether each noun is masculine or feminine. They can just learn it as a noun. Here's the thing, Kevin. We're going to set up the the Academy of English, like the Academy Francais, right? You are the chairman of the board of this august establishment and you have to give a gender to music. What gender would you give it and why? I would give it female gender because the word music comes from the muses who were the Greek goddesses ah. who were the inspiration of all music. That's where the word music comes from, the muses. So it's got to be feminine. Which is a perfect way for me to segue onto Peter Green and the piece of music that you've chosen for us on Friday 15 this week. Tell us what, you, what you've chosen and why. Well, at the time we're recording this, it's the middle of October, so we're just a few weeks away from Halloween. So I thought it might be good to pick a song with a little bit of a Halloween theme, and uh, it's called The Supernatural. This is a song by Peter Green. I'm an amateur guitar player, very amateur, but uh, I've been playing for, for two or three decades, and one of the guitarists that I discovered very early on was Peter Green, an English blues guitar player from the 60s, very much a contemporary of Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and even, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, all from that same era, all guys that started out playing blues and then shifted into, you know, more broad-based kind of rock. And Peter Green is probably most famous for being the guy who founded Fleetwood Mac, but that's a little bit misleading because the original version of the band was very different from the band that most people think of from the 70s and the 80s. But in this particular song that I chose, it's uh, a song he recorded prior to that with a group called John Mayall's Blues Breakers. And John Mayall was a very straightforward blues guy. He didn't like all that blues rock stuff. But you can hear, I think, in this song, you can hear Peter starting to stretch out a little bit and uh, take music in a little bit different direction than traditional blues.
I don't know if I really believe you when you say you're somewhat of, of an amateur blues player. Because one thing which um, denotes you from not being a typical American, sir, right, listening to your podcast, is you do understatement very well. You know, you're, you're very modest for an American. So after <laughs> playing the guitar for some three decades, I'm sure you're pretty accomplished. You're pretty accomplished. I'm okay, but, but I do it more as a pastime and uh, it relieves stress. So I'm not I'm not looking to be uh, the next guitar hero by any means. We were talking before we uh, had our little sojourn into music about uh, gender neutral pronouns: he, she, they. Very topical with um, transgender rights. Where do you see the future with that? Because that can be quite a contentious topic. Well, this is something that English is currently struggling with. If you ask me what will English look like in a few years, I think this is an area where there's going to be some change. Because right now, if we look at third person singular, to use a technical term, so basically he, she, it, we have, you know, obviously a masculine form, feminine form, and we have it, but we don't have a gender neutral pronoun there. So whenever we're referring to someone and we don't really know their gender, we don't have a good choice. We either have to say he or she or it, and we don't really use it for people. That seems kind of offensive. And so this is something that English is struggling with. And so far, there's not been a definitive answer. But actually, what's happening is the plural pronoun they is being moved over and used in that context. So they call that the singular they. So if I said the uh, you know the postal carrier was supposed to be here by noon, but they haven't arrived yet. You know I don't know if it's a man or a woman. I can't say he. I can't say she. It doesn't work either. So I'm going to say they. And this has become somewhat accepted within English today. In fact, the Washington Post has even sanctioned it and said it's okay for their reporters to use it in their writings. I think that's you know something that's happening in English. By the way. Not new. It's happened before. When we say "you," Royfield, "you" singular, and "you" to a whole group of people, we use the same word, the same pronoun, "you." But that wasn't always the case. If you go back to Shakespeare, and you know that that he used different singular pronouns. He used "thou," "thee," "thine." Those were the singular forms. "You" was the plural form. But over time, in that early modern English period, the thou and thine got pushed out, and the plural form you was brought over. Today, we don't make that distinction anymore. We know historically that these types of things happen, and, and it's happened within English, and、uh, it's created a problem because today we don't really have a good way to distinguish singular you from plural you, and that's another area where English is likely to change in the future.、Uh, some people say. You all, or y'all, if you're from the American South, like I am. Some people say you guys, or youans, or yins. You know, there's any number of variations on that. English is still struggling to find a good way to distinguish singular you from plural you. And I think that's another area where, over time, English may settle on one of those options and come up with a way to distinguish them. To close up, Kevin, let's say. That languages are all in a race. They're in a race for global dominance.、Uh, you've got English, which 
touches more parts of the globe than any other language, but actually isn't spoken by as many people as, as Mandarin Chinese. And then you have Spanish. If you were a betting man and you had to look at, to see which language would actually cross the finishing line, win that marathon race to become the only language that everybody on planet Earth needs to learn. In 500, ti- in 500 years time, what would your money be on and why? I'm not sure there's ever going to be one language that the whole world will speak as a common international language. You know, obviously Mandarin is, is, a, is going to be a tremendous amount of competition, but English is probably better positioned than any other language to be that language. But I think it's important to note that English's position is not guaranteed. Greek was once the common international language of the Mediterranean, and it was replaced by Latin, and it was replaced by French, and now it's kind of been replaced by English. Who knows what the future will bring? But I do think that English is is probably the best positioned right now, just given that so many people today have chosen to learn it as their second language, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Kevin Stroud, thank you for coming on to Friday 15 and letting us understand some of the insights into English and possibly where it's going to go in the future. Just before we go, Kevin, um, what's the name of your podcast? It is the History of English Podcast. <laughs> Very simple. Um, it, it, it's extremely simple. Where are you up to at the moment? I am in the early 1200s. The thing about my podcast is it's chronological. So we're in early Middle English uh, in the early 1200s and getting ready to look at the massive invasion of French words into English, which should be pretty. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Interesting. That's Entertainment is the 1980 song by British mod revivalist group The Jam from the fifth album Sound Effects. Although never released as a domestic single in the UK during the band's lifetime, That's Entertainment nonetheless charted as an import single and is a mod anthem.
Plastilina Mosh is an electronic and alternative rock group from Monterrey in Mexico. This is the funk buster Nalguita. Facebook by simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me, I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15. iTunes review, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me from Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. Thank you.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.